When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up, when I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work. Hey everybody, you are listening to Open Mic with Michael Thiessen. This show is produced uh, for you by Liberty Coalition Canada in partnership with ChristianWeek.org. Just want to remind you about the mission statement of both of those organizations. Liberty Coalition Canada exists to establish Christ's justice and righteousness, to allow Christians to rethink about those things from a Christian manner, and at the same time to defend those who stand legally. Christian Week exists as a, as a news website to provide practical, balanced, hope-filled perspectives on national and global issues. So as the year comes to a close, uh, many of you who listen to the show, you know that this is an opportunity to make a difference now. Your generosity can be a catalyst for change in 2024. Uh, in order to finish off 2023 well, we need to raise $50,000 as the year concludes. Our chief litigator, James Kitchen, has been very busy on all of our case filings, and your immediate support is essential. So would you consider giving a gift of $100, $200, $1,000 to support these cases? Like I said, if we raise $50,000 in December, we will finish off the year having paid for all of our legal expenses. So join us on mission, and your year-end donation to Liberty Coalition Canada can ensure that the torch of liberty continues to burn brightly in our great nation. So uh, as you know, my listeners, I do interviews from all around the world and certainly over speaking to our American friends. And so today I welcome Neil Shenvey and Dr. Pat Sawyer onto the show. And we're going to be talking about their new book, Critical Dilemma, and of course, this is, uh, guys, the pun of the book title is fantastic because this is a critical issue. It is a critical dilemma talking about critical theory. So welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Michael. So did your publisher you. give you the title or are you guys that smart that you could do the, that you could do the double entendre there? Wasn't it our editor, Pat? I think it was our editor who came up with it. And yeah, it was not right. us. We had we had much less catchy titles, so we yeah, were impressed you, by it. You had something like super long and academic, or something like three paragraphs. No, <laughs> the way that we normally Probably. the way that we normally try to investigate these things. So, guys, as you come on the show, why don't you tell me how you got involved with this book project together, and let our listeners know a little bit about yourselves. Sure, I can start. So I uh, became a Christian in graduate school while doing my PhD in chemistry at UC Berkeley. And 
pretty soon after becoming a Christian, I uh, got involved in apologetics. I wanted to share the gospel with my coworkers, with my fellow intellectuals, scholars, scientists. So I you know, delved into standard apologetics arguments about why is why do we know the Bible is accurate? Did Jesus exist even? How do you know he rose from the dead? Things like that. So my first book was published in 2022. It's called Why Believe, and it is just really aimed at those basic apologetic questions. However, so I finished that first draft in probably 2016, 2017, and around the time of the explosion of Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I, I have, contrary to popular opinion, I am not a culture warrior. My, my desire is to share the gospel with, you know, atheists. I'd much rather be doing that. Uh, but around that time, as many people realize now, we experienced something called the Great Awakening, both in the U.S. and in Canada. And I began to see these really odd ideas and phrases and slogans coming up in our culture and even in the church, in the evangelical church. So I was confused. And around that time, I providentially met Pat, who goes to my church. We go to church together. Um, we have a mutual friend, Jeremy, who is in both of our Bible studies independently. <laughs> and so we met that way. And when he came over and uh, we hung out until like 2 a.m. one night and I got to know him. And when he explained to me that he was doing a Ph.D. in this critical tradition and he talked about what it was, I the, the, the pieces suddenly clicked. I realized that what I was seeing in our culture was actually what he was studying. So I was like intrigued. So I began doing lots of reading and uh, we began collaborating on helping Christians to understand these ideas and how they're affecting our the church and the culture. So it's interesting because, uh, so, so Pat, you, you like, so Neil, you, you kind of have developed, like you developed a number of online talks that I know that I've utilized those videos, uh, as, as a very helpful, you know, right when I was beginning to explore this, there were, there was an apologetic apologist in Toronto that said, well, if you're, if you're looking to get into understanding this, you gotta, you gotta check out Neil Shenvey. And so I did. And then that kind of was a catalyst for, you know, reading a whole bunch of other literature on about it. I'm a fellow at the Ezra Institute. So we're constantly exploring these type of cultural issues. But what I, but what you just said is like, Pat was the guy who got you into this. That that's, that's a part of the story that I wasn't aware about. Yeah. Well, so Pat, tell them your story. Well, it, it's interesting. Neil was seeing some things in culture already when we met. In fact, he had a, a certain awareness about the penetration of some of these ideas into the church that were a, a little stronger sense of, of that than me in terms of the evangelical church being affected back then. Obviously, that's very obvious now. I was a, actually a banker for about 20 years, and I felt God pressing me to get into the arena of ideas. So in my 40s, I went and got a master's and PhD. I did about nine years of grad school while also working. So that was a lot of fun. And I, my master's is in communication studies. My PhD is in educational studies and cultural studies with a concentration in critical philosophy. So that's dead center in the critical tradition. My dissertation is uh, investigating uh, social justice in higher education in the context and age of neoliberalism, the fact that money really drives uh, the stakeholder of education in our society. So how does social justice work itself out in that context of money pressing everything? And my in my dissertation, the conceptual framework starts with critical theory, then it builds with critical pedagogy, then cultural foundations. And, and so I chose, uh, Michael, I chose this degree 
in this pathway. My my master's being in communication studies was somewhat practical. I, I was on the sales side of banking and moved into executive management. So business selling and, and communication was, and organizational communication was a part of my interest anyway. I, I chose the PhD route because I was interested in higher ed. I wanted to teach in the college and university, be mentored to students and so forth, be salt and light to my colleagues. Also, I, I wanted to pick a knowledge area that was going to be a direct assault, a direct pushback against Christian epistemology, against the Christian faith. I wanted to, by God's grace, Second Corinthians ten five, take everything, every thought captive for Christ. Uh, I was very humble about it, prayed for God to protect my mind and keep my mind uh, around it. And, and he did. He was very gracious to me. I happened to do very well in the program by his grace. And so I, I wanted to learn more about something that was pushing back against Christian ideas. And then also, in a positive way, Christians are concerned about social justice in, in the biblical justice framework and standpoint. Christians are concerned about pushing back against sexism, racism, uh, actual homophobia. That's often a term that gets weaponized and is is referring to things that aren't actually homophobic. But when that is the case, you know, Christians are pushing back against bigotry and so forth. So so that's partly why I chose uh, the program. And like Neil mentioned, we met each other six or seven years ago. He was already seeing certain things in the broader evangelical church. I had some concerns that certain uh, areas of the church were beginning to have a functional uh, identity that was more rooted in their ethnic identity or in their race than it was in Christ. And that concerned me. Certainly, theoretically, they would, the evangelical churches that I was concerned about and the, and the ministries would say that Jesus is their main identity. But functionally, they were really leaning into their ethnic or racial identity. And that concerned me. And so all this conspired for Neil and I to to connect and, and get together. And then we began to do some writing and some a little bit of speaking. Neil's done quite a bit of speaking. I've done some of that. And we, we're writing together. And then also in the Secular Academy, part of my scholarship is pushing back against white power and white nationalist groups in a very overt way. I've got publications in that regard, speaking in that regard to the point of getting death threats as a, as a scholar, uh, at least on a local regional level. Uh, around pushing back against white nationalism. And so I do uh, use some of the critical tradition in that pushback that can uh, give some insight in terms of how some of those uh, white nationalist groups are operating. And so this is what's landed us here. And frankly, Michael, we're just concerned about what's happening in broader society, certainly, but then also what's happening in the church in terms of onboarding various uh, downstream perspectives of critical social theory. Yeah, this is uh, this is such an important discussion, and it's just so you guys get to know me a little bit. Um, one one of the major problems with the church is this confusion between, of course, God's concept of biblical justice, and then the way that the world and the secular. Uh, secular and false religions of the world will try to mimic some form of justice because justice is a justice is a is a creational structure. It's something that we long for. It's something that we can recognize um, uh, as good uh, when we when we see it ex executed well in front of us. But it's so easily perverted and twisted. And then, of course, so people want to take concepts of justice and use it for their own ends.
in order to deny, reject, and suppress actual justice that is from the Lord. And so you're right. This is a conversation that we're having because so many people seemed to be seduced by critical theory. And uh, you can see this type of language when we just talk about classical uh, Marxism. Um, uh, when, when, when we see appeals to Christian words like mm. justice, but then we add the word social to it, people don't understand, hey, why was that word social added and what does it mean? So why don't you help us with like, how do you two, can, can you walk us through a little bit about critical theory and, and why don't you try to be sensitive to that point? Like if you're coming across a term that you know is a Christian term, but it's been, you know, bastardized by a critical theorist or it's been perverted or twisted, maybe try to take care to help our listeners go, oh, okay, that's why it's so appealing, but that's also why it leads in a totally different direction than scripture. Sure. Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. So the critical tradition does indeed begin with Karl Marx. So he's considered largely to be the first true critical theorist. Uh, so Marx tried to understand how power operates in society to produce oppression, to produce winners and losers, the oppressors and the oppressed. And I mean, in Marxism, classical Marxism, he saw everything in, in economic terms. The the owning class, the bourgeoisie, controlled the means of production, and then they oppressed the, the working class, the proletariat, uh, through class systems, uh, oppression. So, but critical theory, the term came later than Marx. It came during the Frankfurt School, a group of philosophers and sociologists working in Frankfurt, Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Later, they moved to the US, so people like Max Horkheimer, Theodore Adorno. And they wanted to take Marx's ideas and apply them more broadly than just to money. They wanted to apply those ideas to things like the culture industry and mass media, and examine other ways beyond just class, other ways in which the ruling class oppressed people and held them back. They were working and they were working towards a vision of emancipation or liberation like Marx. But even that was about 80 years ago. So since that time, critical theory is now an umbrella term that encompasses many different sub-disciplines like critical race theory, queer theory, post-colonial theory, critical pedagogy, intersectional feminism, and a host of other critical social theories. So when you hear critical theory today, think of it, this umbrella category that, uh, that encompasses many different subfields. Okay, so what are the four big ideas within contemporary critical theory, critical theory that we're seeing on the ground today? The first one is the social binary. So critical theorists today believe that society is divided into oppressor groups and oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, and a host of other identity markers. So you have whites oppressing people of color, you have men oppressing women, you have straight people oppressing LGBTQ people, you have Christians oppressing non-Christians, you have a colonizers oppressing the colonized, etc. So that's the first big idea. The second big idea involves the redefinition of a word. So critical theorists today have redefined the word oppression. Now, oppression, the word, is in the Bible but it refers traditionally and in the Bible to cruel or unjust treatment or control, tyranny, murder, rape, you know, but Jesus himself was called oppressed. He was unjustly executed. So that's the word oppression. We can't get around that word. Like justice, oppression is in the Bible. But critical theorists have redefined that word to refer not just to overt tyranny, 
or cruelty or malice. Oppression to them refers also to the subtle ways in which the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or Christians, the ruling class imposes its values on culture to marginalize other groups and to justify their own power and privilege. And by imposing their value, it's called hegemonic power. They use their hegemonic power to impose their values on culture. And those values are so, they so suffuse and permeate culture that they're taken for granted as neutral, normal, objective, even God-ordained. So to them, that is oppression. So for example, white supremacy now is the ways in which white people impose their white values on culture in a way that everyone takes for granted. The patriarchy is a system that imposes masculine values on culture in a way that everyone takes for granted. Uh, the, the social binary, sorry, the gender binary, male and female, that's a form of oppression that is cisgenderism because it imposes these strict boundaries that exclude queer people and, and transgender people and so forth and so on. That's the second idea. Third idea is lived sorry, experience. Neil, yeah, yeah. Hmm? just before you go on to that, I, I think that's exactly the type of thing that I want our listeners to be careful about. So you've heard the fact that they're going to appeal to this idea of eliminating oppression Right. Which is a very Christian virtue. In fact, yes. you, you said the phrase, we can't get around it. There's no Christian that I know that wants to get around it. Right. Every Christian that I know wants to fully engage with how do I eliminate oppression as it is biblically defined. So your right. point there is so is so important, everybody, for, to be listening. The definition has been redefined, though, completely redefined in context of what we would call a Western case law, civil law, rule of law, all of those types of terms, fairness before the law, we are really moving in towards desired outcomes and, and, and the way that these things are being redefined. Okay. That's th 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 thanks, Neil. Go ahead. I Let just want to- Let me give you a host of other terms so that you're exactly right. This is a hugely important point because Christians get sucked into this movement because they hear good terms and good words and slogans, and they assume they're being used in a uh, traditional <laughs> and biblical way, but they're not. Another example, uh, take something like racism. In the dictionary, racism refers to racial prejudice, discrimination, animus, right? But critical race theory explicitly has redefined the word racism to refer to the systems and structures which produce disparate outcomes for different races. And that is called systemic racism. And, and the word anti-racism, if you ask Christians, are you an anti-racist? I think 10 years ago, people would have been like, of course I am. What are you, a pro-racism? Of course, I'm a Christian. I loathe racism. And I'm like, that's great. But now we see people will say, oh, I'm an anti-racist. Well, great, because now Ibram X. Kendi comes along, and in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, he says you cannot truly be an anti-racist if you're homophobic or transphobic, which he's redefined to mean that you, unless you totally accept homosexuality and transgender as fully legitimate and wonderful things, you can't, he says, you can't be anti-racist unless you're also anti-capitalist. You can't be an anti-racist unless you are also a feminist. So he would say all of those things must stand or fall together. So you have Christians that signed up to be an anti-racist a decade ago, and suddenly they're told you can't be that unless you're going to be pro-LGBTQ affirming and you have to be all these other things. Which, which by uh, the way, is, is just a very slick and very carefully thought out method 
of making you side with people you would have never sided with. Like it's, it's been the age old strategy of the abortionist. You, you can, you, you, you can read articles written 20, 30 years ago saying, we really don't want to be talking just about abortion. We want to be talking about every issue. We, we, so it, it is, and this of course goes to the, this goes to the intersectional intersectionality of all of these things where they try to bring these groups together even though they may or may not from first appearances even have any uh, relationship or correlation. Okay. Continue on to your next, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you um, on your point, but I want you to finish your four points because I know you're going through four and I don't want to take us off too far of that. Sure. Well, so they've redefined the word oppression. Then three lived experience is how you escape oppression. So the idea is that we're all socialized into these systems of oppression whether you're black or white, male or female, whatever. You all think that the culture is sort of neutral and normal and objective. But, but if you're a minoritized group, if you're an oppressed group, whether you're a person of color or you're a woman or you're LGBTQ or you're not a Christian, then you have through your lived experience the ability to see reality more clearly. You can, you can gain what's called a critical or a liberatory consciousness. Colloquially, you can get woke. You can wake up to see reality as it actually is. And therefore, you have the authority now to speak and tell the rest of us who are blinded by our privilege how reality actually works. And if we are privileged, then we should just sit down and shut up and we should listen and we should platform and valorize these oppressed voices. And you dare not, if you question them and say, I don't think that's true, well, you're invalidating their personhood. Your job is to listen and to learn, and their job is to teach because they have a critical consciousness. Then finally, the fourth idea is social justice. Another word, we hear justice in the Bible. That's great. We all should be pro-justice, but social justice specifically has been redefined to refer to the elimination of all forms of social oppression, whether it's oppression based on race, class, gender, sexuality. And that word, of course, means the social binary. So critical theorists today want to overturn the social binary, want to overturn the systems and the structures and the values that justify the power of the dominant group of whites, men, heterosexuals, Christians at the expense of the marginalized groups. That's what they mean by social justice. This is why you see, and so they, overturning the social binary is their definition of social justice, which is why you see things like the yard sign. In this house, we believe, and they have a list of these intersectional concerns and all of those justice issues to them are the manifestation of overturning the social binary. Now, the average person with that yard sign does not know where they're getting that idea from. It's in the water today. So you have progressives that have never read D'Angelo or Kendi or Judith Butler or Bell Hooks, but they know the right signs to display. So that's a summary. I'll let Pat take the next question because I talked for a long time. No, that's good. I, Pat, one of the things that I come across regularly when we're talking about this is eliminating that social binary, then some type of mysteriously leads to uh, a human utopia or a societal utopia. Um, can you kind of unpack, in my mind, it's just a, it's just a, um, if, if you take the argument to its logical consequence, if you eliminate the social binary, you'll end up having some other social binary down the road, which then needs to be eliminated. And and there just seems to be no credible foundation for this thought that the elimination of the social binary actually leads to peace. Where would they gather that concept? Is there any credibility to that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. No that's a good question. Yeah. I, I would say that in the scholarship, you certainly do, Michael, have 
peer-reviewed articles, peer-reviewed content, where the hope is if what ultimately the social binary, if that would be, if that would go away, if if those who have been marginalized and disenfranchised would actually now be empowered and and be um, emancipated, then the hope would be then that would create some kind of uniformity in society, some type of utopia. Now, that again, that is uh, in critical social theory to some degree that sentiment and that perspective, but. Um, that is would not be a fair description of how critical social theory is actually thinking about power and the change of power. Okay, throughout critical social theory literature, you would also see that what actually is wanted is not so much a utopia; it is really a society that is approaching power based upon the ideological beliefs claims and biases, presuppositions and pre-commitments of critical social theory itself. And so critical social theory, for instance, back to Neil's discussion, and critical social theory positions heterosexual marriage as oppressive. It positions it that way. And so critical social theory through queer theory is going to be pushing for the normativity of homosexuality and homosexual marriage. Well, if that is going to be a plank, if that's going to be a, a a push, a core value of queer theory, well, then that is obviously going to disenfranchise those who disagree strongly that homosexual marriage should not be normalized. And so if critical social theory has its way and sets up society based upon its moral claims and its presuppositions and perspectives, then that will mean those that are now in positions of power that disagree with critical social theory, then they consequently will be outside of power and they will not have the same kinds of agency and mobility that they had before. So really we do have competing perspectives here that cannot be resolved neatly. And it is a sleight of hand to push this notion that all critical social justice wants is uh, utopia and equity for everyone. Uh, and while that is part of the literature to some degree, and I even employ some of that when I'm making a case from a secular case, if you look at the body of knowledge completely, you will see strands and uh, planks and vectors, whole trajectories of, of ideas and perspectives that will say, no, 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 what we really want is a society that is based upon the ideals of the marginalized, and then that will then make those part those who are part of majoritarian culture the ruling class or the elites, as they're currently understood, they will now be outside of power. So that discourse, Michael, like you're getting to, is a, is a little bit of a deception. And these these ideas are not compatible when we get in the weeds. You, you can't be pro-heteronormativity uh, as a collective good descending from God's design, okay, and then at the same time be pro uh normalizing homosexuality and homosexual marriage. Uh, uh, a and non-A disagree and so and, and are in contradiction. And so we, we have to, to understand that that's what's at stake here. 
I mean, that's interesting on so many points. Um, hopefully that answered your, your question to some extent. No, it does yeah. actually. Like it, it, you, you actually, you actually just basically re revealed or suggested that they're not even suggesting the utopia. They're just suggesting the, they're just suggesting the control of those who put forward a critical worldview. Well, and, and I, it, I partly that, say that, and again, the literature as, as someone who's in the tradition the literature often will say will do some double speak and i don't mean that in terms of of trying of it trying to be insidious but there because there, there's you know there's thousands of scholars weighing in okay that have different uh, aspects of things that they're emphasizing okay and so let's let's definitely keep that in mind but back to your point you'll hear certain voices that will say it's time for white older males to sit down and shut up, that they have had their place, that their voices have been so prominent that they need to sit down and shut up, so to speak, and let someone else lead and direct. And so that kind of discourse alerts you, Michael, that those people are not so interested in a utopia and equity for everyone. It, it, we really are looking at a transfer of power more than a a uh, dissolution uh, and uh, um, you know a, a collective approach to power and so it's important so this is really important because when we're talking apologetically you know we're looking you know we think of first peter 3 but set in your heart uh, but in your heart set apart christ as lord and then moving on to always be prepared to give an answer it's so often as christians we we forget that first part of the instruction and and that is the that is the key difference and the reason why neil when we when we were talking off camera you said I, i'm not really a culture warrior i just really want to i want to talk to people about jesus well when you set apart christ as lord the the the, the power transfer for you is always towards him like we we mm -hmm. always want the kingdom of heaven to expand we always want christ's wisdom you know we go to colossians chapter 2 we always want christ's wisdom to uh, to demolish hollow and deceptive arguments are we're, we're presuppositionally accepting the words of Christ as authority. And when we talk now, what this really is a transfer of authority, this is a transfer of power that comes from the, uh, a transfer of authority. And so as Christians get, as, as they get into this, they go, oh, okay, wait a minute. I, I bit off more than I can chew. Cause I'm understanding this now. This really has nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. This, this, I, they're they're asking me to set a whole other volume of authority up as Lord, which leads as a to a completely different result for justice. Um, and so it's just so important that we're we're helping people parse this out the way that you just you just did, uh, Pat. And, and, and that, that leads me. Uh, sorry, unless you want to clarify, it does lead me to another question for Neil. Okay, so yeah, let me just say real quickly. That, and it's not that we as Christians want power per se. It's not that even with what I just said, the threat is not that somehow critical social theory will take over and those who currently have power will not have power any longer. That's not the enterprise of the Christian. The Christian is just saying that actually heterosexual marriage is actually an intrinsic good, that it's from God. And we're about what is truly the good, not about a, a grab of power. We want heterosexual 
uh, marriage to be a pervasive societal reality because it is good and right, not because we happen to believe it's true and that gives us some type of cultural capital. So it's just important to, to make that clarification. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so personally scared to say that we, we, we want to influence the powerful to create a just society. And I know, oh, I agree I, with I know that. the nuance yeah. you're getting yeah. that. I know people are, that's kind of an outside accusation that I just kind of ignore now. I, people I are like, you. you just yeah. want power. I'm like, well, there is a yeah, Christian whatever. nationalist like, movement pushing for some significant uh, aspects of power in terms of how that can well, be uh, articulated. And just so y'all know, like, the, like if you type in Liberty Coalition Canada, Wikipedia calls us a Christian nationalist organization. So it's the label <laughs> that they've thrown at us that 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 we don't jump wholeheartedly into. I'd much rather talk about Christian liberty or uh, gotcha. uh, right. a, a good friend of mine uses the word virtuous liberty, um, uh, Dr. Andrew Sandlin. Uh, but I also just don't chagrin at all the name calling that we get. I just- You got to let it roll off. off. Back now. Right. Yeah. But, but on this conversation of power, because this is an important one, and Neil, you caught me off guard in one of your videos a long time ago where you, I believe, and, and if I'm if I'm remembering incorrectly, then just Correct me now, but part of this conversation is that hegemonic power, you go on to say in one of your lectures, part of the issues is that hegemonic power is a reality. Like it's, it's one of the observations um, that is true. And again, we could, we could just think about that of like, you know, if there's a whole, you know, my son plays hockey, uh, if there's a whole hockey team and uh, all of the kids are Christians and uh, the, the coach is going to tend to not book uh, games on Sundays. Sure. If all of the Christian families just say, Hey, by the way, love the team, but, but church is a priority for us. So we just won't be showing up, you know, good the, for them. But the, Yeah. And, and, and there's, and there's some, legitimate hegemonic power. Sure. So it's interesting because typically when we have these conversations, you want to, you want to disregard everything. So when you caught, when you said that in your lecture, I kind of said, okay, uh, flush that out. So, so why don't you flush that out for our listeners a little bit? Uh, what, what could be a Christian view of hegemonic power that, uh, or, or what's a better term? Because I think hegemonic power in itself is, they view that as a negative term. So it's not necessarily something we want to turn around and use, but why don't you explain that a little bit for us? Sure. I, I don't mind using the term because I just think their right. majority of associations are wrong. So for example, it's a phenomenon. It could be a neutral phenomenon. Like you said, if you're, I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about in one of those books about how if uh, a young girl thinks that, you know, the, the fish knives her daddy uses are real fish knives and everyone else's fish knives are not real fish knives because she just grew up used, used to those fish knives it's just a normal human thing. Like in every culture, there's certain taken for granted norms, like how you greet people, how you, uh, you know, how you say goodbye. Uh, you know, those are just, and those are, it's a hegemonic power. The people, in some sense, some group of people, even collectively, are deciding, well, this is what uh, the new hot fashion is going to be this summer, right? You know, so, in our, and then as a Christian, it's even a 10 year cycle, just so you know. Yeah, but right. Bell, yeah, bell bottoms are on their way back in. I don't know why, but yeah. mullets and bell bottoms are on their way back in. Go ahead. So, the, the point is, I give examples in my talks of like hegemonic power, and it's a very useful thing to see. So, for example, why is it I say that it's so hard to teach Christian kids uh, proper uh, thinking about sex and sexuality and gender in our culture? And the answer is because Hollywood has hegemonic power. 
the culture is pushing for a completely unbiblical view of gender and sexuality. And it's everywhere, everywhere you turn, billboards, pop-up ads, YouTube videos, you know, it's ev- music, it's everywhere. That is hegemonic power in action. So I think it's a completely fine insight to say, yeah, in fact, there are some very, there are ways in which uh, culture is insidious. And that's why the Bible says to be transformed in the renewing of our minds, to not just drink in and imbibe the cultural's values because they can be wrong. Now, the difference is for a Christian, we don't think hegemonic power is necessarily evil because sometimes the culture imposes values and norms that are actually righteous. So and a simple, silly example that I use is in our, in our culture and in almost all cultures, we all wear pants. We all wear clothing, right? We don't walk around naked. And if you did do that, people would you'd be like, that's, that's weird. It's disgusting. It's just don't do that. But they wouldn't really think, they really thought through why we shouldn't be nudists. They're just, well, that's hegemonic power, but it's a good thing because God has given us an instinctive awareness that we should be clothed, that there are certain parts of the body that are private and not for everyone to gawk at. So, but, and, and no critical theorist goes around saying we need to dismantle pant wearing and clothes wearing. We'd be all nudists. That's, they don't, so they don't problematize all values. Even they realize some are benign, but, and I would just say go farther. Christians can say some are God ordained. So is the gender binary a hegemonic value? Yes. It's also good. <laughs> we, so Christians can take that insight, legitimate insight of critical theory and say, and yet we have to understand that in light of our core biblical worldview, which says that, in fact, we can, so we had, and one more thing, and sometimes hegemonic values are evil. So in the 1930s Jim Crow South, you had certain standards of behavior for black men. Black men couldn't look a white man in the eye. They had to get off of the street when the white person walked past. Those are all just ingrained cultural patterns, and yet they were based on a very wicked view that whites are better. And so we can question that and say, hey, that's, that, does that accord with God's law? Is that how we should treat other people? No. So we can question hegemonic norms and, and hold them up to the Bible, but we never have to just discard them just because they're hegemonic. That's not true either. So I, I love that. So guy, I, think, I think my listeners know, like they're, they're, they're well-informed enough to know how exciting this conversation is. Because basically right now what we're dealing with is we're dealing with just not being pushed around with 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 all of these redefinitions of language and 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 um and and kind of like like you just said like it's it's an observation it is not necessarily a negative observation so mm-hmm. the the word yeah you know, I, I like to say this and by the way i think berkeley just resolved this so i'm very excited about it pat you might be able to help me on this but when black lives matter came out big time you know i, I as a good christian i said all lives matter in fact, I don't even believe in racism in the sense of I, there, there are no races. We are all humankind. This is an evolutionary idea that keeps getting pumped up and, and pushing us all around. And so we have to really, uh, you know, there, there are ethnic differences, but, but we have to value all life. And so I just brought up the example saying, look, I'm 5'6". I, I have been reminded of my height my entire life. Every, like there, there is a hegemonic power of people who determined basketball hoop sizes. Like <laughs> it's 10 feet. Why is it not 8.5 feet so that a, a 5.6 guy with good vert can dunk? Like just why isn't it? There's a hegemonic power of height. I received so much online flack for mm. eight months for that because I wasn't, it wasn't on the intersectional uh, uh, list. But I think Berkeley just solved it. They have created uh, – Berkeley has created a height museum where you can go and you can all wear differing varies of 
heights of shoes and then look each other in the eye. And my point is that there's no end to the list that they mm -hmm. can create unless we define the list as Christians according to his God's word, according to his law and his standards. And then the things that are defined there, as you just said, are worthwhile to keep normative mm -hmm. and, right. and, 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 and to establish behavior based upon, uh, based upon norms that the law is a good teacher and people, people learn from other I, people learn from us as we imitate Christ. So hmm. this is, this is a really great conversation. Pat, did you have anything to add um, on this point about hegemonic power? Well, I would just say that, that that's why I was bringing up the point of heterosexual marriage. That's a hegemonic norm in our society. But the question isn't how we don't make a judgment about what to do just based upon whether something has happens to be hegemonic or not. We have to get underneath it. We have to understand this norm. Well, what is the basis of the norm? And if it's something that is good, true, and right in terms of morality defined by God himself, well, then we would promote it. We would promote that hegemonic perspective. We would try to reify it and continue it. And when we see something that is hegemonic, that is evil, like Jim Crow, then we need to overturn that and push back against it. But if anybody were to say, well, there's no, no, there's no truth to hegemony, well, that's just a, they just have a misunderstanding and a false view of what hegemony actually is. Hegemony is just the fact that stakeholders in societies, institutions, systems, customs, traditions have certain kinds of power and others don't. And those that have the kind of power that is real and active, well, they're hegemonic. For instance, Christmas is a hegemonic holiday. It happens to be a federal holiday in the U.S., but it, it has power. It, it Tremendous power exerts on our society. Well, Kwanzaa does not. And so Kwanzaa is not a hegemonic holiday. Christmas is. And so this Christmas is, is fine in the U.S. for it to be a hegemonic, you know, holiday because for it's rooted in something that is good and right, uh, you know, uh, Ultimately, now it has been bastardized. It has been uh, secularized. It's been altered. A lot of the power that goes along with Christmas has very little to do with something that's good and right. But the, the point is that it can be rightly problematized, but it would be absurd to say that hegemonic power doesn't exist. We just need to know that it does and then try to get underneath it and change hegemonic perspectives that are against God's law ultimately and then promote. Uh, hegemonic power that is in keeping with it. And when I mentioned other about Christian nationalism, Christian nationalism in soft forms is good and right. It's the promotion of God's truth and God's reality, which we should all be about, because that is where human flourishing ultimately resides. But if we've got hardcore expressions of that, then we, we might be running a file of humility and certain things that ought to be, you know, prioritized in uh, individual Christian behavior and perspectives. So. It, 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 wow, this conversation. So, so number one, we, we led right into what typical conservatism is, right? Conservatism is that we conserve hegemonic, uh, we, we conserve systems and structures that provide right. for normative behavior to reflect uh, what they would say classical, traditional Western uh, culture. I think we have to get away from 
that those loose empty terms now and and just mm. say we we are conserving christian culture and we are promoting and building christian culture and then yeah to your point of christian nationalism it's just a discussion that has to be hashed out because because you can't approach that idea from a non-christian perspective you you can't approach right. that idea um from a rationalist perspective or 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 rationalism just leads to kinism and then kinism leads to uh, racism. And then it, like it, you, you, you actually have to go back and you have to look at this thing that we're talking about and say, no, this has to be defined and promoted. If we're going to try to conserve Christian culture and promote a, a, a Christian hegemony, uh, then, then we have to do that in a Christian way. So uh, I, I, I appreciate the nuance of this conversation so far. Okay. So as we're in talking guys, I'm, I, I keep thinking back to a Christmas, maybe four years ago. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sitting back. I, I'm, it, it goes and it goes to, I think Neil, you were the one who said, you know, some people are just saying, no, we, well, Pat, it might've been you too. One of you guys said the illustration of people are saying, you know, old white men just go sit down. Um, which by the way, I hear all the time. I, I number one, I don't feel like I'm old number <laughs> one. I, I tan great. I don't even feel like overly white and I'm, I'm a pastor. So I'm definitely not rich. So I, I don't get how that applies to me in any way, but, um, four years ago, sitting around and young Christian woman, of course, just loving critical theory. She's not married yet. She's not understanding the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. So all of the, all of the female power type lingo, not understanding the depths of the theology of the church. And so all of that lingo is just really appealing to her. And, um, a friend of mine and I are trying to kind of shake her out of this. And we came across the subject matter that um, what we were trying to explain to her was privilege as divine, as defined by critical theory is a term that is just used uh, to conform people to, to the, to the social justice program. But we can't deny the idea of advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, can we have a good discussion about this, guys? Because I think this is really confusing for people. On one hand, of course, I want I want my, do I do two parents give a child an advantage over a single parent home? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do I want to give my kids all of those advantages? Yes. Do I want the law to punish my children? for having my all the all of these types of things. So can we talk through the idea about advantage and privilege? What are, am I just do I just need to not worry about intermingling those terms? But how how do we think through this in a very practical manner where Christians are looking around going, "Yeah, I do have great advantages about sure. being a Christian." And they go, "Oh, that's terrible." And it's like, "No, no, right. no. Stop." <laughs> We, no, I, I'll just make another plug. Let's go out and buy our book. So in our book, we literally have entire sections on what is equity, what is privilege, what is oppression, what is justice, and like taking all those critical theory suffused terms and then unpacking them and saying, well, this is what they're getting right, actually. And here's where they go totally wrong. Privilege is a great example of that. So privilege, it's often succinctly defined as unearned advantage. That's succinctly. And as you said, of course, we all have all kinds of honored advantages. 
you grew up in the 21st century or 20th century, right? You, it, which means that you're, you have access to modern medicine. You have access to incredible wealth. You're an American. You're not living in a, you know, Antarctic. <laughs> you had two parents who loved you. All these privileges, you're able-bodied. You're, also, all those things are unearned advantages. You didn't create them. So in a sense, they're privilege. So we can acknowledge that. Absolutely, you have all kinds of unearned advantages. That said, critical social theory would view privileged and oppressor and dominant as all synonyms. Privileges accrue to people because they belong to an oppressor group. That's why you have white privilege. That's why you have male privilege, heterosexual privilege. So, to, so when someone throws around the word privilege without really understanding the provenance of that term, they're buying into the entire worldview. So, so and here's a great example why. Uh, we have to sit our book. <laughs> we talk about it, Oprah. Oprah, you know, the entertainer, talk show host, I think she's worth $2 billion. She has me like six houses. But according to critical social theory, she is not privileged with regard to her race and gender because she's a black woman. So she is actually oppressed or minoritized, whereas a homeless white, a homeless, disabled, uh, mentally ill white man has male and white privilege. Now they might concede that, well, the, yeah, the, the homeless white man is, you know, he has a kind of rough life, but he truly is still the recipient of white and male privilege. Whereas Oprah, even though she's a multi-billionaire who could buy all my stuff a thousand times over, she is still oppressed with regard to her race and gender, even if she has some wealth and class privilege. So our point in the book is that is a completely bankrupt way to think about privilege. They understand that totally in these relative terms. So that's number one. It's like, there's no way in any sense, legitimately, that Oprah is oppressed. She's not oppressed. She has an incredible life. And, and in the same way, there's not really any sense in which the homeless white guy, mentally ill, disabled, God, is is really in any sense privileged? In, it's not going to do any work for him. Like it's going he's he's living a miserable life, and that's one thing. So it's just a bad way. This collective way of thinking about privilege is just incredibly naive. Uh, second problem, they they don't recognize that privilege is contextual. So are there situations in which being a white male gives you privilege? Yes, right. And we actually have data in our book showing that, for example, if you're a white person who does a job interview, you have a, more, a greater likelihood of being receiving a callback than a black man with the same credentials, same height, same attractiveness. They've done these studies, very careful experiments showing, yeah, there's actually white privilege, right? But there are other places where there's black privilege. A good example is the recent Supreme Court case that overturned affirmative action. They showed data showing that, yes, indeed, if you're Black or Hispanic, all things being equal, there is Black privilege in Harvard admissions. So that's a thing they'll never talk about, really. The critical theorists won't talk about that privilege is contextual. Same thing, you know, is there Christian privilege? Well, if you're living in a rural, deep red Bible Belt town, then yeah, if you're the village atheist, it'll be harder. And if you're an evangelical Christian, it'll be easier. But if you're living in, you know, a progressive college town, well, the Christian is at a disadvantage. So same identity, Andy College. Now, my point is, again, buy our book, because we go through in great detail all of these nuanced discussions. The bottom line is that, uh, unfortunately, there's often a Mott and Bailey. Uh, it's a strategy where 
critical theorists make this outrageous claim, like all whites are racist. But then if you press them, they'll retreat and say, oh, all I meant was that all whites benefit in some small way from having certain privileges. And you're kind of like, oh, I guess that's true. And then they go right back to saying, well, all whites are racist. And they go, well, these are two different claims. In the same way, people will say, all whites have privilege. And you're like, well, what do you mean by that? And they, all, all I mean is that we all have unearned advantages. And well, that's true, but and there's, well, actually, they're actually sneaking in all these other assumptions about the nature of privilege and oppression and justice that we have to recognize it and discard. Pat, anything to add? I would just mention a lot of good things that have already been said, but I would just mention that the notion of unearned uh, advantages and then earned advantages often get conflated in the context of these discussions. So it, critical social theory wants to label almost any advantage as being rooted in privilege, particularly when it meets its convenient intersectional identities. Okay. And so uh, a, a white man who is wealthy, it, he's automatically considered to be uh, privileged because he's white and male and wealthy. And the, the fact that he didn't control himself being white or control himself being male, and then the fact that he actually really did come from poverty and worked exceedingly long hours and was very innovative and creative and built this wealth, and he earned it. That kind of scenario is, is, is difficult for critical social theory because it wants to just lump uh, that kind of individual into some type of privilege category and then linking it, as Neil said, with an oppressor category. And the the wedding of the privilege to the oppressor status is so pronounced that it, it actually, it, in truth, falls apart once we get into the nuts and bolts of society in certain situations where people have actually earned, quote unquote, the advantages that they have. And that earned advantages. We don't want to take away from society in truth, even though critical social theory problematizes egalitarianism, meritocracy, and competition as just a, a rule of, 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 of law. They, they just automatically problematize that. In truth, the reality is that competition, meritocracy, and egalitarianism are often cultural goods that are very needed for the comportment of our society. If you're going to go have brain surgery, you're going to want competition, meritocracy, and egalitarianism to have been in play for your brain surgeon. <laughs> and you, you're going to want them to have earned you know, their privilege by beating out others and doing well in their, in, in, their, in their work. And that's who you want to be operating on you. So this notion that we would just get rid of egalitarianism, meritocracy, competition, wedding it to, to privilege in false ways. That's just absurd. And so our book helps unpack some of these things. So on the, on the brain surgeon thing, you know, uh, everybody who listens to my show knows that we had a two-year-old who struggled uh, with cancer. And uh, I know that day where the mm -hmm. surgeon came out and, and had to resect uh, Gabriel's liver and part of his lung. And yeah, you, you're, you certainly want that person to be competent and what he's just done. And he was, and we're, we're very thankful for that, for that ministry that he served with our family. It's interesting. Both of you guys, as just, you just explained there, we are collectively lumped together or, or, or whichever group is 
and then collectively condemned. That that it's it's interesting that the collective lumping together it ignores all the things that you just referred to about individual achievement and individual work and and we were just collectively lumped. But then going to this idea of that to have privilege or to have advantage is automatically assumed then to be an oppressor. Mm-hmm. So you're you're collectively lumped and then you're collectively condemned. I think the the logical consequence of that would be then we would need to be collectively ruled by a very large state who mm-hmm. would be able to define and control all of these things for us collectively. Um, so no wonder this this just leads to this ongoing growth of bureaucracy and statism. Yeah, well, you're getting at something um, really important, Michael. The uh, critical social theory is against individualism and pro-collectivism. It is unabashedly pro-identity politics, for instance. Mm-hmm. And and that, that means now we are ceding power to apparatuses that meet our moral perspectives and desires. And so a progressive state, you know, a state like a progressive government, a government that is being progressive, well, critical social theory and those critical theorists are very pro that because they, they see collective power, which they appreciate, pushing back against individualism, but it, it's rooted in their moral claims, ideas, and perspectives in terms of what is good and right. So. Oh, yeah. it's it, The change of one law is just a change of a religion. That is, uh, I think that's... I think that's our rate. Our uh, I think that's Rush Dooney. Who mm-hmm. we, we we're having a change of worldview. We're returning to a paganism that always has to return to the uh, to the growth of the state. And as we've said, we're not being treated as individuals, so we have to be collectively ruled because there's there's no satisfaction in the court. Okay, uh, really simple. We have four minutes left. Really simple last question. So so many people are introduced to to critical theory with a very simple exercise. And so if we all were to stand up in the room right now and we were to stand in front of our laptops, we'd have a, a series of questions read to us and it would be, if you're this, take one step forward. If you have experienced this, take one step forward. If you, if you have experienced this, take one step back. And so there is a, there is a, there is a metric of measurement and the, and the measurement is in a step. So when you're talking about Oprah Winfrey, Neil, mm-hmm. um, she only gets one step forward uh, of advantage for owning six lavish homes. You know, one of one of which I used to walk by in Chicago all the time uh, at the top of one of the one of the downtown buildings. Um, she only gets one step forward. She 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 might get one or two steps back for being black. Uh, we should get one step back for being black, one step back for being a woman. Do you you guys understand the exercise yeah, that I'm uh-huh. talking about? So so many people are introduced by critical theory because of that. Uh, I've heard of youth groups in the church using this exercise regularly. Um, is it is my, this might be just a completely unfair question, but. It, it seems to be such a powerful little exercise for communicating so many falsehoods all in one moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- how do you recommend we like? Do we have an do we have an alternative exercise we want to think tank out right now? Um, have you guys given any thought to that? Because that's got to drive you nuts. I mean, watching it, that. 
we I, I've heard of the exercise and seen it. Um, and Pat can probably tell you more about how critical social justice people often problematize that exercise because it reifies the social binary anyway. But so that's even not a very cutting edge <laughs> social theory. But um, what I would say is like all the things I've talked about already are, are in play there. So the fact that Oprah gets one step forward for being a multi-billionaire and gets two steps back for being, say, black. One thing that's interesting is to is to actually see the implicit um, – do you want to say, is it fair to say bigotry in that exercise? So for example, it, it, oftentimes it'll be like, if you're disabled, take one step back. If you're black, take one step back. Wait, wait, hold on. Are you saying that blacks are at the same disadvantage as if someone is disabled physically? Like a person in a wheelchair, obviously they have challenges. And being black is like that? Now, what are you doing to the agency of the black person who steps back as if they are handicapped? <laughs> That's extraordinary. When you think about that, if I if I were a neo-Nazi and I said, if you're black, take one step back, what am I communicating? Here you're lesser than the people that are standing up there straight, like the white people. So it's just amazing to me that we just gloss over, you know, we're communicating so many things, like you said, in that exercise, things like what matters with collective. What about all the things that aren't factored in? Like, did you have a two-parent home? Are you a believer? Are you, a, are you inheriting the kingdom of God? Right? Are, you, are you indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Do you have a loving church community? Do you have friends? These are not even mentioned. And yet we know like some secular studies that what really produces happiness and fulfillment are things like friendships, marriage, good family life. All those things are ignored completely. <laughs> so there's just so many problems with that exercise. And I think, like you said, people don't even think about what's being communicated. Uh, before they do it in their youth group. But I would just urge them, I'm begging you, you know, think, think, just think, listen to alternate perspectives. Like, like, you know, I mean, you can name lots of books here, but we try to do a good job in our book of explaining very carefully and clearly why these tropes, these uh, exercises are, these, these terms, these, the slogans, they're dangerous, they're bad, we should reject them. I, I, I like that. I, I number one. So the the metrics is just completely flawed. Mm -hmm. The categories are completely flawed because they're utterly they're 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 selective. And uh, so maybe 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 youth groups should go out and do this one thing. Like go to a football field. Everybody get on one one, you know, the one yard line, and then say, "Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ?" died on the cross and was raised again on the third day. If that's the case, run all of the way to the other end zone and that's your advantage. Mm -hmm. And then for all the other kids that are left there, you preach them with the gospel. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what we, that, uh, this has been so helpful, everybody uh, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people buy uh, your book? Uh, you can pick it up on Amazon. You could pick it up on christianbooks.com you know amazon christianbooks.com online some barnes and nobles are carrying it but you certainly can get it online from barnes and noble you can go to your local barnes and noble and request it help you know get some activity going so and then there's there's a website uh for for the book as as well uh, criticaldilemma.com and so you, almost uh where books are sold you you can pick it up and if you do buy it on Amazon and you love the book, uh, please do give us a review. There, there's uh, Amazon gets kind of squirrely about uh, 
uh, reviews at times, and sometimes there can be some suppression of things. So the more people attempt to do that, uh, the better off. That's really good. Thank you so much. Um, everybody, of course, Biblical Sexuality Sunday is coming up on January 14th. That is where um, we, uh, Liberty Coalition Canada, a number of pastors in Canada are calling all of North American pastors to preach a sermon on the Bible's view of sexuality in order to um, put our government on notice, both our, both north of, uh, both in the north and in the south, um, that that God's word is to be followed regarding uh, biblical sexuality. And so folks uh, stay, listen to the 30 second video. And if you um, are a part of a local church, which you ought to be encourage your pastor to preach a biblical sermon on sexuality on January 14th. This is our annual time. Our first time we did this, we partnered with pastor John MacArthur in California. We're hoping he's going to be able to partner with us again. Um, we, 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 last year we had 4,000 pastors join us across, uh, North America. We want to continue this press so that we are unapologetically preaching God's word on this very important issue. So listen to the video and of course, uh, share this video out, uh, and go buy Neil and Pat's book. You will be well informed. Thanks so much for listening. Godspeed.